show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hi, this is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Ilyri. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Today. Hello. <laughs> Hi. I'm drinking a 2019 Beaujolais. Ooh, so am I. <laughs> We're actually drinking the same thing and it's directly related to the theme. This is a rarity. Do you know what we should do? What? Chin it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I'll get onto this later. <laughs> Hold that thought. <laughs> What are we actually talking about? Beaujolais. Nouveau. Beaujolais Day. Yes. Beaujolais Day. Do you know, are you aware of it? Well, so, I mean, I, I wasn't prior to preparing for this podcast. I mean, I was aware of Beaujolais, but you told me some of what you're about to tell me about Beaujolais Day in Wales. And I thought you were either crazy or making it up. Um, it sounded like some kind of bullshit to me because I couldn't <laughs> understand it at all. Why was Wales celebrating Beaujolais? So I think the best thing to do is to just let you lay the groundwork for me having to go away and find out the actual facts behind this. Sure. Well, good job, I, I've done that. <laughs> <laughs> so, just to bring everyone up to speed on Beaujolais Day, because like you, most people haven't heard of it. Nope. I hadn't heard of it until I moved back to Wales a few years ago. I'd only really heard of Beaujolais in a Blur song. <laughs> Charmless Man. Yes. Do you know your claret from your Beaujolais? I do now. I do now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Beaujolais Day is well, originates from France, because obviously Beaujolais is a French wine, and um, it was just a celebration of the new wine. Um, and that became a massive thing in the UK in the 80s, because there were a bunch of rather well-off men quaffing their Beaujolais in France. Mm -hmm. And when they were quite drunk, they decided to create a race to get as much Beaujolais as they could to London back home. Um, and that was that, that just two drunk men enjoying this wine going, this is really good, we should take this back to London. And because we're really drunk and we're men and we're full of testosterone, we want to make it a competition. So uh, let's do a race. Whoever can get the first case back to London wins. Uh, and that became like a massive annual thing now, the Beaujolais race. It still happens now. And um, it's always like a, an experience. There's lots of like supercars doing it and vintage cars. And it's all very prim and proper but they do it now for charity like a lot of people take part in the Beaujolais race every year to raise money for oh I can't remember the charity it's a royal something charity but yeah so um that took off in the 80s so Beaujolais Day was on the map a lot more in the UK then um particularly in London so it was originally seen as a London craze 
uh, and then it was a Welsh rugby player, Clem. He decided, because he had a house in Burgundy and he was able to get lots of Beaujolais to Wales and conveniently owned a bar in Swansea as well, he thought, yeah, I'm going to start doing it. I can get my hands on a load of Beaujolais. I'm going to bring Beaujolais to Wales. And so his bar was one of the first in Swansea to start selling Beaujolais back in the 80s. And not wanting to be outdone, some of the other brasseries and restaurants were like, well, we want to get in on this because it's becoming quite a thing. Um, and that's how it slowly started to grow in Swansea. And it was back then quite a classy affair. It was, you sit down, you have your dinner and you enjoy your Beaujolais. Um, and then it started to fizzle out across the rest of the UK because it was quickly gaining momentum. A lot of people were enjoying the Beaujolais day and the pomp and circumstance that came with it. But a lot of people wanted to get in on it and make money out of it. So a lot of really nasty imitation Beaujolais wines were made and they were very acidic and not very nice. And people stopped drinking the Beaujolais and then it became just about more of a day and an occasion rather than the actual wine. And Swansea being Swansea, we're like, we're totally okay with that. Piss up. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, that's kind of how it stayed in Swansea and it continues to grow. Uh, there is actually a cultural professor who very politely worded it that uh, Swansea's always been quite quirky and not one to... to and kind very of... polite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Swansea's quirky and they enjoy being, you know, out, out, not with fashion, not following trend. And so, yeah, that's why we've embraced uh, Beaujolais Day. Not because we like an excuse to get drunk. Do you know, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all that you mentioned that it was, you know, kick-started there by a rugby player who owned a bar. Because you have told me so many stories of hedonism that have begun with that very fact that you went to a bar that was owned by a rugby player and then chaos ensues. It just seems to be a normal thing there. It is, pretty much. <laughs> like, basically, Welsh professional sports people are like the bar owners in Wales. They're like yeah. the, drink, the drink mafia. <laughs> <laughs> I've noticed, yeah. It's a very specific thing. Um, so, yeah, what does Beaujolais Day look like now in Swansea? chaos i mean if you google beaujolais day swansea you'll find just you know those daily mail articles that they do on like black friday and christmas yeah. eve and new year's eve where people get pissed and fall about that's essentially beaujolais day in swansea <laughs> um i did look at some pictures on wales online for this because and i could not tear my eyes away for a full 20 minutes i would i would have <laughs> described it like that but crossed with like Royal Ascot. Yeah, so... <laughs> please describe, please really, give us visuals. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll try and do it with regards to like a timeline of the day because it's yeah. like a full day thing now because there's almost like two waves of it. <laughs> so you have like celebrations will start at like midday lunchtime and that's kind of now turned into like a business networking opportunity so a lot of businesses will book tables because um they still do do the dinner and wine and entertainment side of things but it's not a classy affair <laughs> it's very much just a <laughs> <laughs> kind of similar to like some places on new year's eve where they do a you know sit down dinner and then everyone gets wasted um 
so yeah in the afternoon it tends to be the business owners and business types who go out and they obviously sign it off as a a networking event um but everyone really dresses up and i mean like really dresses up hairdressers makeup artists it's a full kind of people will go and really doll up um so that will start happening in the afternoon and obviously anyone who's not working or is a student or this that and the other will go out in the afternoon as well because why not it's everyone's out so for the people like me i like i've only dabbled in Beaujolais day for the last two or three years because like i said i didn't i'd never heard of it really uh until i moved back to wales and the other times i was working and i was like is it really a big thing it, like you i was a bit like mm. i'm pretty sure everyone's over exaggerating it wasn't until i was working in an office above the bars and restaurants of swansea uh about four years ago that i saw it firsthand and i was like holy it is uh, it's like new year's eve it's huge so i uh, decided to dabble in it about two years ago my first beaujolais and i didn't want to take the day off work to go out drinking <laughs> so i decided to go out after work uh, and when i suggested that to my husband he was a bit like are you sure because you're just going to be joining beaujolais day like you know, that's like turning up to a party at 1am and everyone's like wasted and you're sober. And, yeah, it's like going to Oktoberfest just for the evening. Yeah, yeah. It, and that, that's exactly what happened. I do have a really bad story that I don't think I've told you. <laughs> <laughs> please, please tell everyone. <laughs> Put it down for the annals of history. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm going to say this on the podcast. Okay, I'm going to say it. So this was my first Beaujolais day. We didn't book in for a dinner or anything. We went out really late. It must have been about seven o'clock, uh, which isn't late for normal people. No, right? I was going to say really <laughs> late. <laughs> that's that's late for Beaujolais day. That's late. That's late for like a Saturday in Swansea. But uh, yeah, that's late for Beaujolais day. Mm -hmm. uh, so we went out at seven, and we went down like the marina in the nice kind of quiet bars that most people don't go to because they're quite out of the city centre. Yeah. So it was quite quiet and subdued and nice. And then once we'd had our fill there, we were like, let's wander over to what's known as Wine Street, which oh. is the bars. You, you've been there. <laughs> I mean, if, you, if you've seen any, if you've seen any sort of sci-fi drama set in an apocalypse, it's that kind of vibe, isn't it? It's sort exactly. of... Um, Running Man Gauntlet kind of affair, <laughs> The Warriors, something akin to that. <laughs> That's exactly why we were like, let's go and pre-drink in some bars and just build ourselves up to that. Yeah. Also, um, pre-drink, very Welsh term. Pre-drink is a Welsh term. Pre-drink pre like, pre isn't having a meal, pre-drink is drinking. <laughs> yeah. It's the drink you have before yeah. you go drinking, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's the drink you have to get you ready to drink. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we headed towards Wine Street and we, I was with a group of people who I'd not actually been out drinking with before. Again, reiterating, I've only moved back to Wales fairly recently, so I was still establishing a group of friends. <laughs> and so I went out with this lot and they were like, oh, let's go to the Queen's on the way. And I was like, I've never heard of the Queen's. And it was, it got a mixed bag of responses. Some people were like, oh yeah, I haven't been there for ages. It would be funny, which is always alarm bells. Yeah. And 
the other height the other half of the party were like no we're not going to queens <laughs> anyway we ended up going to queens and it was just like a really really rough pub like horrendous and we were sat in there and there was a woman who was so drunk she couldn't even speak and she was she wasn't young she was like kind of at least late 50s kind of 60s age obviously dolled up to the nines in a glittery cardigan for Beaujolais Day and she was sat next to us because we were like there's like a a whole table available next to this old passed out woman (laughs) which is unheard of on Beaujolais Day because everyone's booked up and you can't get a seat so when we walked into Queen's we were like well yeah it's an absolute shithole but I guess there's a table so let's sit there Mm -hmm, jackpot mm -hmm. So we sat down and we were having a few drinks and then we noticed like a really bad smell. And we were like, oh, that's not very nice. <laughs> and I went to the loo and then came back to the table and noticed the smell even more. I was like, oh my God, yeah. When you walk away from the table and then come back, it's even worse. Um, I'll, I'll get you out of the suspense. So long story short, the woman had shat herself. <laughs> And the reason there were so many empty tables around her was because she was just sitting in her own shit in the pub. <laughs> These are the kind of tasting notes you just don't get from Jilly Gould and Anos Clark. <laughs> so that, ladies and gentlemen, was my first foray into Beaujolais Taste Swansea. <laughs> yeah. um, drinks for beer in social history. <laughs> <laughs> So um, to be honest, I, di- I didn't last much longer because it progressively, it didn't get worse. Like it doesn't get much worse than somebody mm. shitting themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but nothing happened to make it any better. Um, so I just went home. I was like, this is awful. Everyone's really drunk and just, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it didn't last long. And the following year, um, my husband suggested going out for Beaujolais Day for my birthday because it always falls around my birthday. Yeah. <laughs> so I was very like, mm, I'm not sure I want to spend my birthday doing that. Yeah. But he he was like, no, 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 we'll do we'll do it in a nice way because my husband has done a number of Beaujolais days uh, from the whole like I'm a business owner networking. He's yeah. done that side of it, which is ugh, I don't want to do that. But he'd done it for long enough to know how to get the best out of Beaujolais day. So we booked um, we booked a table in a really nice small French restaurant out at the city centre and had like a really good three course meal, and we had a bottle of Beaujolais, which actually another thing Beaujolais. I yeah yes. So nobody <laughs> nobody on Beaujolais Day drinks Beaujolais Day. I think a lot of people in Wales don't even know what Beaujolais is. No, I've seen like I've seen people post on Instagram. They can't even spell Beaujolais. They're just like <laughs> they, don't, they don't know what it is. It's just like a day. C O W. Well, the the very first image you sent me of Beaujolais Day was your friend necking several bottles of hooch. And I was like, I don't. This is why I was so so incredulous about what the Beaujolais aspect of this was. I couldn't figure out it being a real thing. (laughs) So, funny you mention that because it was was that day that we did the whole hooch thing because we'd had this lovely meal in a French restaurant and we'd had Beaujolais and they had live music there and it was lovely and quiet. And we still were like avoiding the main kind of strip of bars. We were just going to quiet independence on the outskirts. And it was really quiet everywhere. And we were a bit like, maybe we've gone a bit too tame. Like I've had a lovely evening, but I feel like I haven't really done Beaujolais. Mm-hmm. That's when my friend is like, let's get loads of hooch and make it really not classy. <laughs> so 
<laughs> we sat there and drank hooch all night. <laughs> oh. And we were like dressed to the nines in this nice little pub drinking hooch. <laughs> Oh, Swansea. <laughs> um, some of the figures, because obviously this is not really from any research. This is just my experience of Beaujolais Day. So I did do some research. Um, <laughs> and the figures, the figures were crazy. Like this was from 2016, 2017, because I couldn't actually find any up-to-date figures. Um, but in 2016, Beaujolais Day contributed £5 million to the local economy in Swansea. Like, that's how big it is. That's insane. Yeah. Because it's become such an enormous thing that it's not just, like, the people of Swansea that do it now. People come, like, far and wide for Beaujolais Day in Swansea because it's such a thing. And the the infrastructure that's put in place for it is enormous as well. So there's um, there's a, a hotel as you come into the city centre called Morgan's, which is enormous in itself. And... They said that on a normal day, like Christmas Day, for example, when they've just got the restaurants and everything set up in the hotel, they can do around 200 covers. Mm-hmm. But for Beaujolais Day, they do 900 covers. Um, they set up an enormous marquee outside their hotel, which is essentially the same size as the hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's crazy because when you drive through Swansea and you see that big white tent going up in November, it's like almost like, you know, when you see like Winter Wonderland and Christmas markets popping up. Yeah, you see that big white marquee, and you're like, "Oh, Beaujolais Day's coming!" Like it's a it's a big event. Like it is now. Some bars say that they they take more on Beaujolais Day than they do on New Year's Eve in um, wow. in takings, and I, I guess it's because there's an like a big cover charge, like or entry fee, because most people have entertainment. And most people offer a three-course meal and drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas on New Year's Eve, most people are just going out for drinks. So yeah, people take more money now on Beaujolais Day than yeah. they do. It's like the biggest night. Well, look, I, you know, I think it's no, um, no less silly than countries other than Germany celebrating Oktoberfest, right? You just, yeah. It's just an excuse to enjoy lots of beverages. You know, we're not Bavarian, but I go to London Oktoberfests. Yeah, I don't think I've actually said, we've not said the date. It's, I don't know if you were going to cover that. In I was, uh, I, mean, I was going to mention it, but it's, it's fine. It's not a secret. It's the th- third Thursday of November. Yeah, I feel like I, it's my duty to Swansea Tourism to give the date. Come on down, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I don't, we're not this year. <laughs> I don't think Swansea Tourism is ever going to sponsor this podcast. <laughs> Might do. <laughs> yeah, I, I got an email from um, an oven company asking if um you would be interested in putting an advert out didn't even like bother replying or reading the rest of it because i was like you i mean you don't know what this podcast is <laughs> Whoa. there's no there's no baking involved can, can we do some really hilarious adverts i'd love to do that i in in another podcast i do i always have fake adverts for pharmaceuticals but, but this is going to be a real advert yeah and it's gonna all right i'll I'll look into it for you i can't believe somebody trusts us with that to um to give us some um legitimacy shall i I do my normal historical approach to this and see if there's any truth in what Mm. you've said what was not legit or historical about my story i mean my facts (laughs) uh well we'll see um (laughs) 
All right, so um, something you definitely got right is that Beaujolais <laughs> in, in France. <laughs> Am I taking, am I marking points here? I think you should. I think every time I say something that you said, you should give yourself a point and we'll tally them up at the end. And then so, chin it for everyone I get and wrong. Then, and then chin it for everyone you've got, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. I've got a pen. So one tick for Beaujolais being a region yeah, of France. Yeah, it is a region along the Saone Valley, which is near Lyon um, in Burgundy, as you mentioned. Uh, the Saone, Saone River is a tributary into the Rhone. Um, so that area was first cultivated by the Romans when they were mm -hmm. getting their trade through, through, through Gaul and through France, and probably cultivated around there in the first century BCE. And then we can see that by the seventh century into the Middle Ages, it's being taken over by the Benedictine monks, famous religious pissheads. Um, and then by the 10th century, that's when the region actually becomes to be known um, as Beaujolais from the town Beaujeu. So it wasn't known as that beforehand. And it's ruled by the, the Lords of Beaujeu until they're succeeded by the Duchy of Burgundy in the 15th century. So that's kind of like who's got control of the area up to the 15th century. But Whereas the um, Burgundians were, were very wealthy, very posh, and they favoured Pinot Noir as their grape because they thought it was more elegant, the mm -hmm. uh, people of the Saône Valley and Beaujeux were actually mostly using the Gamay grape. And that's because it was a lot easier to cultivate. Um, it was, you know, it was more resilient. It didn't take very long to ferment. It was ready two weeks earlier than the Pinot Noir. And the thing is with this region, it was a lot poorer than where the Duchy of Burgundy was based. And they'd also recently been ravaged by the Black Death. You know, it killed something like a quarter of the population of Europe. So they were not in a good place. And so they chose to move to the Gamay grape rather than the Pinot Noir. Um, however, the Duke of Burgundy, Philippe the Bold, um, was not happy. In 1395, he outlawed the cultivation of Gamay. He said it was a very bad and disloyal plant. Ooh. I mean, <laughs> yeah, anthropomorphizing a plant like that. It's disloyal. <laughs> <laughs> um, 60 years later, uh, Philippe the Good, it's come from bold to good. Um, issued another edict against Gamay, even though it had already been outlawed, they, they're not done slagging it off. Um, and he says the, the reason for the ban was that the Dukes of Burgundy are known as the lords of the best wines in Christendom, and we will maintain our reputation. So it made sure that the Gamay plantings were staying southward out of the region, uh, the main region of Burgundy. So even though Beaujolais is part of Burgundy, it's not Burgundy wine. It gets push the Gamay grape into Beaujolais where the granite-based soils are and the grape is thriving there. Mm -hmm. So it stuck around um, that region only really selling in that valley until the 19th century and that's when railroads come in in France and they're able to ship their words to Paris so they can start selling uh, Beaujolais in Paris markets. Um, and that's where we really start to sort of see the origins of its racing to market, kind of, uh, mm -hmm. as you put it. Known as Beaujolais Nouveau, it doesn't happen until the 20th century. 
So you know the, um, the like the official French society that says this is what you can do with wine and this is what you can't do with wine. The yes. Appellation d'Origine Contrôlée, the AOC, not Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, as I <laughs> thinking when I read that. The AOC <laughs> say in 1937 that Beaujolais wine can only be officially sold after the 15th of December in the year of the harvest. Um, and then they relax those a bit in 1951 and push it back to November because it is ready earlier. And also this is the kind of wine that you want to drink early. You know, it's, it, it doesn't keep, you want to drink it within two years. So it's kind of like, well, you can move it back. Um, it starts to take on this uh, reputation of racing across the country in the 1960s. So there had before, long before that, there had been a celebration of the harvest is ready, let's drink it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's when it gets pushed back to kind of this specific time in November that they start to think it's funny to, <laughs> you know, kind of like an interesting thing to, to race these bottles around. Mm-hmm. And in the 1960s, we definitely see those races, as you said, coming from England. And it was English clubs sending their drivers out and they would race to Beaujolais and back. And it was mm-hmm. who could be the quickest with the most wine. And, you know, drivers would like leave their tyres in Beaujolais, you know, for having uh, swapping <laughs> over tyres as part of the race. And we can remember as well is that this kind of like long distance endurance racing is really popular at this time. You know, we've got Le Mans, which is the 24 hour mm-hmm. endurance race, which started in the 1920s and stopped because of the war and then had this resurgence in the 50s. And by the 60s, you've got the likes of Porsche and Ford and all this and, you know, Formula One and Formula 5000 really taking off. So yeah. racing around the country was really popular. <laughs> Um, it carries on into the 1970s where it does become a national event. Um, mm-hmm. And in the 70s, it actually starts going to the US as well, to New York and Minneapolis. Um, and it spreads into neighboring countries in Europe in the 80s. You start to see, <laughs> apparently, modes of transport included Concord and hot air balloon and elephant. Um, so there's, it goes to a lot of places, not just England, although it does seem to kind of have started there, as I say. Mm-hmm. Then what happens is in the 1980s, it's seen as a more commercial opportunity than simply kind of a tradition of getting the wine out quickly. Um, yeah. And so they, whereas before what happened is the third Thursday of November at 12.01 a.m., the wine would be released from the warehouses and everyone would mm-hmm. go crazy. They started to ship it ahead of time. And then what they would, they would sort of hold it in a bonded warehouse at the location, and then it would be released in the location at that time. So they changed it so that it could be a sort of marketable, here it comes on the Thursday to everyone at the same time, which is really where this sort of idea of um, Beaujolais Nouveau comes from. The firm of Beaujolais Nouveau, it's claimed, comes in the 1980s from Georges Duboeuf. Um, Georges Duboeuf was... Um, one of the largest wine merchants in France um, and he is known as like the king or the pope of Beaujolais and he came up with this term he was a bit of a marketing genius he has a, a lot of wine and his his bottles are 
highly decorated, like really gaudy labels. They don't look classy at all. And they would also every year release a silk tie that matched the design that would elaborate on the one from the year before. So he was really into everything. But he, like he was um, a wine, a wine worker from the age of six. He started as a manual grape crusher at the age of six. And then 18, he was delivering wine on his bicycle from producers to local restaurants. Um, and then he sort of went on to form this syndicate of 45 growers. Um, and then he became a wine merchant or a negociant, as they call it, in 1964. He actually only passed away in January of this year, 2020, um, in, his, in his 80s. So he was kind of the one that brought us the modern idea of Beaujolais Nouveau, of Beaujolais Day, um, of all this kind of thing. And it became incredibly successful um, in the 80s and 90s. A lot of people were buying it. Um, you know, it was like um, millions and millions of bottles. Like there, there was so much demand, they, they couldn't create enough. But of course, with that comes the inevitable backlash. As you kind of mentioned about there being poor quality versions of it, it wasn't, I mean, it, that this is true and there are various scandals associated with that. It wasn't just the poor quality versions that were created. It was, you know, tastes change all the time. They're sort of batting back and forth, whether you want deep complex flavors or easy drinking stuff. So- Do I get a point? Mm. Do I get a point for that? Oh yeah, I think so. Yay. Absolutely. <laughs> Um, so one of the kind of accusations leveled at it came in 2001 I think you really see the backlash at the beginning of the 21st century Um, Mm -hmm. over a million cases of the Beaujolais wine had to be destroyed or distilled into uh, like industrial alcohol um, because the sales had, had really gone down and there was this French wine critic called Francois Mass, and he gave an interview to a local paper in Lyon, Lyon Mag, that the reason was basically because of the poor quality of Beaujolais Nouveau that flooded the market in recent decades. Um, and he said that the producers had ignored the warning signs, um, and <laughs> he quite, he termed it "van der merde," which we we all know that word in French, shit wine. Yeah. So, there was an outcry amongst the Beaujolais producers. Obviously, they were not happy. And they filed a, a lawsuit. 56 of the producers filed a lawsuit against the publisher, against Leon Mag, um, about Mouse's comments. Now, in the UK, we have some pretty aggressive libel laws. You can sue for libel for almost anything. But in France, they chose not to go down the libel route because they have a special law which means that you're not allowed to denigrate French products. They are very nice. protective over many things in France, their products, <laughs> their language. Um, and they initially successfully sued in 2003 and Leon were um, fined 350,000 US dollars um, mm-hmm. to give to the producers, which obviously would put them out of business. Um, the shit wine case became even more known. It's like the irony is, you know, he gave an interview in a local magazine, but the case of him calling it shit wine then became global news. So everyone now hears that Beaujolais is shit wine. So it really like, in terms of publicity, terrible move, backfired. And then also in 2005, 
um, the High Court um, appealed and reversed that. And the Beaujolais winemakers had to pay 2,000 euros in costs to Leon Mag. So it really didn't work out for them in the long run. No. Um, Deboeuf's company as well in 2005 were caught mixing low-grade wine with better vintages um, after a bad harvest in 2004. Deboeuf kind of denied he had anything to do with it and it was actually the production manager who then claimed responsibility. Um, they were found um, a, a fraud, an attempted fraud of, of the origin and quality of wines. Um, it was actually in fewer than 200,000 litres of the 270 million litre production. It was put as a mistake. Um, yeah. So it seems like legitimately it probably was a mistake, I would say, but they take this stuff very seriously. So it's considered yeah. a scandal. I love how invested they are in it all. Mm. Well, you know, it's a, it's a huge part, not only of their economy, but their culture. You know, obviously the, the, the fact that they have wines named after regions rather than grapes. You know, Beaujolais isn't a grape, it's a region. It can be, it's mostly the Gamay, but it can be other grapes as well. They really have to be protective over their, their origin. Well, we all know it's like common knowledge how protective they are with the whole Champagne region as well. Yeah, exactly. It's the same. It's the same for all the regions. Mm -hmm. um, and then there was another one in 2007. Five people actually were arrested for selling sugar to um, Beaujolais growers. They sold nearly 600 tonnes and um, 100 growers were accused of using the sugar um, illegally. It's a, it's a process called um, chaptalization. Uh, chaptalization is when you add extra sugar, not to make the wine sweeter, but to increase the alcohol content so there's more fermentation. Uh, you right. are not allowed to do that um, in France. And they exceeded uh, volume quotas as well. So they were, there was all kinds of trouble going on. I blame Swansea for that. They're like, yeah, they need more booze. <laughs> they need higher alcohol content. They need more volume. They produce too much volume. And because the problem is with producing too much volume is this is not a wine that ages well. You have to drink it kind of straight away. So, you know, the government were like, you're producing far too much wine that's being either wasted or turned into industrial stuff. It's better to produce a good wine that ages because then you can store it and, you know, it creates more value. So that's part of the problem as well. Like it's not just a snobbery thing. It's the fact that it's so wasteful if it doesn't yeah. get. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things about the production as well then, as I say, it's, it's mostly the Gamay grape. Um, they use a process called carbonic maceration, which is distinctive of, of the Beaujolais which is an anaerobic fermentation. So they put a lot of carbon dioxide um, in with the must. And uh, what happens is that the, the grapes aren't crushed when they ferment. So they ferment with the skins on, apart from the ones at the bottom that are kind of crushed because of the weight. Um, and what that means is that you get that fresh fruity wine that's low in tannin and also kind of generally low in alcohol as well. So that's one of the kind of distinctive things about how it's made. Um, it comes in different varieties. So you, you get Beaujolais, which is 90 something um, vineyards or regions, villages, you know, in the, in the region of Beaujolais. You get Beaujolais Village, which is um, 30 something, it's more specific. And then you also get 10 Cru. Cru is like, you know, the highest level. It, it signifies that it's coming from either a single vineyard or a collection of vineyards. Um, mm -hmm you know, that have very uh, specific vines and it's a, of a high level. The one what I want... What are you drinking? 
Oh, I am not drinking a crew. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm drinking uh, La, Ga- La Garoche. Ah. La Garoche Beaujolais of last year. So it is. I've got it is a village. Oh, nice. I think yours is slightly mm-hmm. fancier than mine, though. Wasn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did go for crew. I really should have, shouldn't I? Yeah. Um, the one I wanted to tell you about is the Bruy. Bruy is the largest crew in Beaujolais, uh, situated around Montbrui, so it's named. And the wines there are noted for their aromas of blueberries and cherries and raspberries and currants, no tasting notes, along with um, Côtes de Bruy. It's the only crew Beaujolais region that allows grapes that aren't just Gamay. Um, so they can produce um, Chardonnay grain vineyards, for example, Allegrotes, Melon de Bourgogne, and the Brewery Crew also contains <laughs> a particular vineyard, which is called Piss Viel. Yes. Which translates as Piss Old Woman. <laughs> I feel personally uh, attacked. <laughs> where, where do you think this name comes from before I tell you? Uh, the woman that shot herself in the pub outside Swansea. <laughs> right, every region has a story like this. <laughs> it's actually the opposite. So um, this comes from the local legend that there was this devout Catholic woman who, mis- who misheard the local priest's absolution to her. So he <laughs> said, allez in a péché plus, which means go and sin no more. But apparently she heard allez en a pisse plus, which means go and piss no more. <laughs> Oh my gosh. So the vineyard's name is her husband's admonishment to her saying, um, <laughs> piss old woman. <laughs> like, I'm not allowed to piss. <laughs> I'm not allowed to piss, the priest said so. That's my French accent, apparently. Um, <laughs> That's very brummy out there in Burgundy. What <laughs> <laughs> are we that You want some time, Shelley? <laughs> yeah. I didn't want to give you too much legitimate history, you know, I wanted to give you some <laughs> clearly fake stories. <laughs> um, speaking of the easy drinking thing, as I said, it's, it's kind of come and gone in fashion as wines are really um, victims of. Because, uh, precisely because of what it is, you know, it's, it's a lower alcohol made for quick drinking, basically chin it, is the approach for having Beaujolais. It's meant to be, you know, fast drinking, um, easy drinking. It's also meant to be chilled, which um, I think a lot of people in this country don't do. It's it's funny you say that, because I have this exact argument with Chris, because I came home with the shopping last night, which included a bottle of Beaujolais, mm-hmm. And I put it all in the kitchen and distracted myself with something else and didn't put the shopping away. So Chris ended up putting the shopping away. And later that evening, I opened the fridge to find my Beaujolais in the fridge. And I was like, Chris, it's red wine. What's it doing in the fridge? And he's like, no, you meant to put Beaujolais in the fridge. He's right. And I was no, 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 you're not. He's like, you definitely meant to put Beaujolais in the fridge. And I just kind of poo-pooed it with a, shut up, you never drink it. It's red wine. Take it out. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, he's right. I mean, he's... I'm totally not going to... I'm not going to tell him this. No, never tell him. Never tell him he's right. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's best served around 11 degrees. So you probably only want to put it in the fridge for half an hour, you know? 
um, depending mm -hmm. on what your, your fridge is set at. Um, it's, it's because essentially it's like a white wine that looks like a red because it's, it's quite low in tannin. So the French would generally have it, you know, it would be the kind of red that you might keep out at room temperature, but stick in a, a bucket of ice and then go for a picnic. It's that kind of vibe. And yeah. it is meant to be the one that you just, you neck and you drink happily because it's lower alcohol. The French actually use a term called um, glue glue. Glue glue. Um, <laughs> it's very common over there, but over here, if you use it, people think you're being a bit pretentious. Um, it is glug basically in, in a more anglicized version. So glue is, is the glug and glue glue is someone who appreciates the glugging. Um, so if the <laughs> wine is glue glue, it's, we would sort of, I suppose say easy drinking, but easy drinking, mm -hmm. not just in terms of flavor, but lower alcohol, like you can, you know, happily drink a lot of it, but it doesn't mean that it's not good. You know, and not, not good. They would say more like Jaja. Jaja is like, it's a whatever wine, it's kind of lower esteem. So glue glue is this, this easy drinking wine that you might want to partake of. And that's how it's kind of having its comeback after, after being denigrated for being a wine that's not good, which happened a lot in the 2000s. It mm -hmm. has been a reaction against high alcohol wine that you can sort of only have sparingly in this really intensive flavor. And it's like, well, what if I just want to have a picnic in the day? That's the wine you want. Yeah. So that's the kind of, you know, that's the rebranding of where it is at the moment, I think, as a wine. It is very tasty. I'm enjoying it. It's drinkable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, glue glue as well. It's, um, as I say, it's a term that is used in France, but some sort of critics have been a bit snippy about it. But I found evidence that it's quite an old term. It's in a play by Moliere, like one of France's most famous playwrights in 1666. The doctor, despite himself, says, Qui sont doux, bouteilles jolies? Qui sont doux, vos petits glou glou? Which is, how sweet they are, pretty bottle, how sweet they are, your little glou glou. So mm. it's been around a long time. Imagine it that, like, I can imagine that term becoming a kind of derogatory term that's used for someone who drinks too much. Yes. And it's yeah. still, it isn't in France, but that's kind of, it's, it's become more, more known kind of outside as the Jaja version. It's kind of like, ooh, it's a, it's a whatever wine outside of France. Mm -hmm. still. I think people have to accept it for what it is. It is an easy drinking, low cost, low alcohol wine that you have straight away and, and fresh. It's not one that's aged and complex. You can't kind of criticize <laughs> a wine for what it's not trying to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the Beaujolais Day celebrations outside of Swansea. <laughs> <laughs> they do exist. They do exist. Very much so. Um, Beaujolais Day is still very much swinging in Beaujolais. Um, the slogan uh, that they use is still um, Le Beaujolais Nouveau est arrivé. The new Beaujolais has arrived. You know, it's the excitement of it. Um, Assignment of it arriving, although in the US they just changed it to um, it's Beaujolais Nouveau time because they can't <laughs> cope with the French version. It's heavily marketed towards Thanksgiving in the US because it's the same time. Same time, yeah. Thanksgiving is the fourth Thursday in November, so it's the week before. So over there it's like Beaujolais, the Thanksgiving wine. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's a hundred festivals in the Beaujolais region. 
um, at this at this time. The most famous one, um, Haldin Beaujeu, the uh, Les Saint-Montel, um, that's the capital of the region. And it goes on for about five days, I think. It starts the day before they're released. And then when they're released, everyone has like a big blowout in the marquees and stuff. My favorite thing is that they every year they have an annual tasting competition. So you have to taste the 12 different varieties and whoever wins, and I don't know how you win a tasting competition, but whoever wins gets their weight in wine. Oh my gosh. Yeah, which right now would be great. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I'm ready. I'm ready to pile on the bands on that occasion. <laughs> I think like next year, probably next, not next year, it feels unrealistic, but maybe the year after next, let's go to Beaujolais. <laughs> Burgundy. Let's I go. The wine festival. They are very. I feel. Like you. I think you need to do Beaujolais in Swansea and Beaujolais in France. Not in the same year. We wouldn't survive. No, well, no, it would be impossible. But um, <laughs> yeah. You would die. <laughs> yeah. One more thing, I did. I did find. Um, I did find a country who I think takes it as seriously as. Um, as long as he does. I think I know this. Yeah, what do you think? Do I get a point if I get it? Yeah. Is it Japan? Mm-hmm. Yeah! It is. it is Japan. They are absolutely mad for the Beaujolais. What did you read mm -hmm. about it? Uh, I didn't actually read about it. I was literally scanning through this afternoon some articles and I just saw a picture of people in like a hot tub filled with Beaujolais. Yes. So that is partly true. Um, first of all, Be Beaujolais is massive in Japan. At its peak in the sort of in the 2000s, they imported 12 million bottles, which is one mm -hmm. bottle for every 12 people in Japan. Uh, <laughs> so that's a lot of Beaujolais. The, yeah, there's this, there's this image in this article that does the rounds every year in Japan, which is partly true. So um, it's of, yeah, it's of people bathing in Beaujolais and they're like celebrating Beaujolais day with a hot uh, Beaujolais spa, which they do, but they also have that all year round because mm -hmm. it's a spa called Unison, which is outside of Tokyo and um, flavored baths, as they call them, like hot, not like a small bath, but like a, you know, a bigger sort of jacuzzi pool type affair. They're a normal thing there. So they have them also flavoured with uh, coffee and yuzu and all sorts of stuff like that. And it's not a pool filled entirely <laughs> with, um, with Beaujolais. They put in, it's something like nine bottles to the 10,000 litres of water that it takes to fill it. Okay. So it is only filled and it is all year round. Unfortunately, it's not, the articles that like to say, they bathe in Beaujolais for Beaujolais days and be partly true. But they do okay. love it over there. It is one of their favourite things, yeah. Nice. I want to go to Japan and bathe in Beaujolais. <laughs> I mean, you could do it at home, hun. Just pour a glass in the bath and you've got the same experience. Maybe invite, maybe invite a Japanese man round <laughs> to share it with I'm, you. I'm, I'm not one to do things by half. So if anyone wants to sponsor us, like a UK hot tub <laughs> company, I'm willing to fill it with mulled wine and see what happens. <laughs> to work for like a hot tub company that 
did events and stuff. I'm sure you must have spilled wine in that. Yeah, the hot tub cinema didn't really work for them. Just kind of probably spent too much money with them. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. I thought you worked for them for some reason. I thought you did some sort of consulting, but you were just there. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I was very drunk at the time. (laughs) Maybe I was. (laughs) I'm going to consider that your Beaujolais spa. (laughs) I do like the idea of filling a hot tub with mulled wine, though. Mm Mm-hmm. My mum's got a hot tub, I'll ask. <laughs> so um, how do you how do you now feel, having learned more about Beaujolais and Beaujolais Day, do you feel like you're going to try and pass any of that knowledge on to Swansea when you next go? Or um, is, is that do, a losing battle? <laughs> I do feel compelled to get in touch with Wales Online because they've, they've this week put out a really sad um, news article <laughs> about what Beaujolais Day is going to look like this year. Spoiler, shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, I, I feel like I want to get in touch with them and say, like, let's have a positive slant and celebrate the life of the dude that kind of commercialised it and brought it to you. And yeah. raise, let's raise a glass to him at home this year. Cause I mean, you could write an article on it and then uh, put a link to this. Yeah. You've, there I mean, we go. you've definitely offended a lot of Swansea in the process, so that might be a risky move. But um, uh, I mean, I can't really, <laughs> I can't really offend anyone when I'm part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Very true, and and this is the um, satire. Yes, but uh, I'm going to try and subtly mention to my friends that maybe we should go to France and do it, and not Swansea. I don't think France is ready for you, mate. <laughs> no, it could be worse. I didn't shit myself in the pub. <laughs> and so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to <laughs> aller and uh, pisser plus. <laughs> or shit yourself. Cheers, everybody. Hi, this is Thinking Drinking, a podcast about drinks, trivia, and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim, and I've just realised I haven't put my phone on airplane mode. <laughs> oh, uh, there we go. Right. Actually, I'm going to check up what mine is. <laughs> <laughs> it was so prepared. <laughs>